and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and our very special guest, Adam Andrews. Welcome back to the show, both of you. Thanks. How, that was... Unscripted, unscripted. Uh, how's it going? Angelina, I'll ask you first so that we can we don't answer, you know, we, I mean, unless you guys want to try to just, you know, the whole way through the show, speak at the exact same time and we'll see. We are going to prove that great minds do in fact think all of That might be hard to sustain. <laughs> I'll email you exactly what I'm going to say. Hang tight. There you go. We just, we're just scripted. Angelina, how's it going? It's going great. I was just, I was just telling Adam before we, we hit record that I'm so excited for our, like our twice a year snow that we get. Cause this is like introvert vacation, right? Like I've Coming got a little early this year. I've got so much tea and a stack of books. Like, I'm just like, yes, force me mother nature to not have to leave my house for three days. This is awesome. <laughs> you mean give you permission to just do what you normally do. Yes. And not feel guilty about it. Right. Got it. Okay. Got it. Yes. That, that, that does make sense. Adam, what about you? How's the weather in Washington? Well, we were just talking about it. It's normally by this time of year, first week in December, we've got six or eight inches of snow down in Northeast Washington state and it stays down for the rest of the winter, but we have yet to see our first flake, which I was just telling Angelina is, is odd because this year for the first time ever, I bought a brand new snowplow for my truck. Why is that so, odd? That sounds like it could be exactly what should happen. Well, maybe what it takes to, to, to have a dry winter is to buy a snowplow. And That's then right. It's, it's, it's the, the reverse of that. You wash your car and snow it so it rains, right? Like exactly. <laughs> well, it's like never, never make a will because as soon as you make a will, you're going to die. That's right. Right. Yeah. No, never wake up in the middle of the night thinking I have to change my will because then someone will murder you. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. We, I, I, need, I need a lot of books. Yeah, a lot of mystery <laughs> stories. Well, speaking of books, we are here to discuss F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and we will do so in just a minute. Quickly, before we dive in, though, I want to say a quick word from our friends over at New College Franklin. Uh, if, if you have listened to Surfy Podcasts, you know about them, and you probably have heard from Greg Wilbur before. He's spoken at various conferences, including conferences that both Angelina and Adam have spoken at. Uh, but New College is a four-year classical Christian liberal arts college nestled in downtown Franklin, Tennessee, focused on the great ideas, the quadrivium, and the, and the trivium. New College is dedicated to spiritually forming students by by I always want to say disciplining them. It's discipling. <laughs> by David, this is not the ad they want. <laughs> yeah, by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. New College Franklin, a new college reclaiming and recasting the old Augustinian idea of education to take delight in contemplating created truth. You can find out more at newcollegefranklin.org. And again, that's newcollegefranklin.org. Here's, here's my unsolicited shout out for New College Franklin. I was going to say I haven't been paid for this, but he did give me a water bottle. So in, in the spirit of fair play, I have been given a water bottle by yeah. Greg Wilbur. A very nice one too. But uh, I, I was invited out there last fall and I'll be headed back there this spring. And they, they've really got something special there. I encourage our, our listeners to, uh, to check them out. They, they've got a, a really special thing going on. Yeah. And what, one of the great things is that there's not a lot of students kind of purposefully. So right. your students get actually cared for and get to par really participate in the life of the school. And they're not just one of many, you know, it's not enough. Oh, not at all. They really are discipled. <laughs> not if they're disciplined, I saw none of that. <laughs> I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're learning some disciplines as well. Um, they are. <laughs> but I suppose we could bring in pastor Adam and have a long discussion about the, the, the degrees to which discipling and disciplining are just synonyms for one another, but we'll probably should save that for another day. Uh, <laughs> let's talk, let's talk great Gatsby. We talked um, about the first three chapters uh, last week and we're going to talk chapters four and five this week and four chapter four begins 
with what I think is a fascinating sentence that I would like to spend some time. Okay, before you do that, can I can I make a request? We did not talk about the epigram last week, and I think that's worth spending at least a minute pointing out. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So once again to Zelda. Oh no, that's the (laughs) not the dedication. But that's probably pretty significant, too. Um, But um, so one of the things I've talked about this before on this podcast, and I always make a big deal about this in the classes that I teach is to always look for any indications that the author is giving you about how to read his book. And one of the easiest and most common ways is that he will give you an epigram to to set to set all kinds of things, tone, theme, etc. for the book. So I'm a real stickler about looking up. If it's a line of poetry or something, I'm going to look it up. I've got to know the context and the whole thing to to sort of prepare myself to enter this work. So I did that for this book. And I'm sure Adam's already giggling because I found out it wasn't real, (laughs) 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 which is so fitting for this book. The whole thing is a persona. That poet is not real. It's an invention. It's a persona. And that what what edition are you using? Charles Scribner's Sons. That's what it says right under... What year? Oh, let's see. 1953. Do you not have that in yours, the the poem? I I was going to say, I don't have an epigram. It's it's a poem by Thomas Park Dinvilliers that reads, Then wear the gold hat, if that will move her. If you can bounce high, bounce for her too. Till she cry, lover, gold-hatted, high-bouncing lover, I must have you. Hmm. A, a poem, presumably, by Thomas Park Dinvilliers. <laughs> that it turns out is fake. Well, not only that, um, Fitzgerald, not only did he make up the poem, but he made up Thomas Park Dinvilliers. That's right. He's a character he's actually, in yeah. this, this Side of Paradise? Is yeah, right? he's a character in, in another one of Fitzgerald's novels. Yeah, that, was his, that was his first novel, right? Oh, no, Tender is the that. Night was his first novel, I think. This yeah, I want to I say Tender is the Night was his first one. Well, anyway, that's fascinating. It is, right? All about persona also and making up identity. Also that I don't have it in this edition. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. So that's shame. Shame on that edition. Well, except... Well, I mean, it's the Simon & Schuster edition. Um, it, I wondered if that's a... If given... Oh, never mind. That's weird. Okay, it's not... So I do have it, but it's not where you'd get an epigram typically. Oh. They have no, a, mine's they not have a, either. Mine's under the title page. They have it's it tucked away. Page. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyway, that's interesting. Okay. that So it's not... So I wonder... What, I wonder it's almost like they're... Like he wants that to be part of the... It's like a subtitle almost. Yes, and I actually well, yeah. read... Uh, where did I read? I read this somewhere that he really labored. I'm sure Adam knows way more about this than I do, but he really labored with the title and didn't like the great Gatsby. And so goal hatted lover was one of the titles that he threw around. Hmm. Well, it certainly obviously evokes the theme uh, of what Gatsby is trying to do in this novel, right? To do whatever it will take to win Daisy's love and affection up to and including, or maybe even beginning with adopting a persona, creating a history, creating an identity. And that seems to, to uh, come up over and over again of the nature of a theme or a motif throughout the novel, the creation of identity for purposes uh, of your own. 
But that would the fact that it's not where normal epic. I mean, normally I would bring up an epigram too, but you yeah, know. I thought it was weird that you didn't. So I'm so glad you're telling me now it's not there. It was just because, <laughs> I, yeah, it wasn't because I was ignoring it. Um, well, we got let's keep that let's keep that epigram in mind and um, see how it plays back into it. I the the idea of um, the cold the till she cried. So is the little quote in the poem real fake too the part where he says till she cried lover gold hatted high bouncing lover i must have you i mean is the whole thing made the up the whole thing's fake and including it, the man and it's but it's not and it's not from no I, I mean not according the, to google i the looked character it up. is okay okay the interwebs have yes got i mean come on that's trustworthy <laughs> i'm just teasing actually i i love the internet for research purposes it makes the life of a scholar really easy <laughs> <laughs> I'll say I love being able to Google a snippet of poetry and be like wow I would not have found that on my own <laughs> <laughs> um, well that let's I think we should keep this in mind um, and in some ways I think it relates very directly I'm kind of glad we didn't talk about it last week because I think it relates very directly to these two chapters um, I agree. particularly chapter oh, five yeah. But I think the best way to dive in is to just actually, well, dive into the beginning of chapter Let's four, because this first sentence is extremely so rich. So good. That's a, an amazing sentence. I really like it. In. Yeah. So chapter four. Hey, Adam, why don't you read that first sentence for us? Sure. Uh, chapter four begins, on Sunday morning, while church bells rang in the villages along the shore, the world and its mistress returned to Gatsby's house and twinkled hilariously on his lawn. <laughs> okay. So... I was, I read this last night and then I read it again today. And I as I was reading it last night, I kind of read it and then like went up to bed. And as I was lying in bed, I was thinking, this is either an example of why F. Scott Fitzgerald is a genius writer, kind of par excellence, or it's why he's one of the most annoying people ever who lived. <laughs> and... I think that you could make a case for both. Like I can, I think you can make the case for why people don't like it or find him ostentatious and annoying based on this sentence. But of course, neither of you are going to think that. So maybe I should just take up that side for the sake of conversation. Um, I'm, actually, I'm not actually serious about that, but I was thinking about the sentence and how, how it can be broken down. And he, he's, it's, there's a lot of, questions he's raising here or at least that he that he causes you to think about here so when you think about this whole the world and its mistress i i was trying to think of like what who are these people that why does he call them the world and its mistress so who's the world and who's the mistress well i i think the most uh, the most striking thing about this sentence and i love the way it begins chapter four and begins a new real um section of the novel is the, yeah, the, yeah. the contrast between yes that's what i was thinking um, too the church bells ringing mm -hmm. and and um people going to church on a sunday morning the day in which this happens is really significant mm -hmm. it's sunday morning when christian america goes to church mm -hmm. and at the same time the world in christian parlance the world is the mm -hmm. is the opposite of the church right the world and its mistress, an allusion to adultery, fornication, immorality. Which is but the metaphor the Bible uses. 
Right. So we got we got the we got Christian America, America of a previous age, the America that uh, that has passed away is going to church. And the current America that we're living in and wrestling with is a worldly adulterer who's not at church. He's at Gatsby's house instead. So those two those two scenes are supposed to contrast pretty directly in your mind as you read the next chapter. So why are they twinkling hilariously on the lawn? And why does he choose twinkling hilariously as his verb? Well, twinkle oh, because is verb. twinkling twinkled is so much better than return to Gatsby's <laughs> house and walked across his lawn. It's just that's it's true. If you if that irritates you about Fitzgerald, you need to read more. That's a wonderful <laughs> verb. It is, and I, it has a lot of connotations. Like I thought of like the twinkle of stars and um in the American, I mean, I'm just going to get off on a, on a tangent here because I don't know that this is necessarily what Fitzgerald has in mind, but it's what came to mind. Um, in, in, in Europe, they have aristocracy. In America, we have celebrities, right? We are, and, and our stars that twinkle are really just an illusion, and we know that in, in a sense. Um, that's why our celebrity watching is never as much fun as royal watching. <laughs> uh, and so I thought it was an interesting use of the word, uh, even even the twinklers are an illusion, and then he. F- yeah, I, I think that's true, and I think the the um, the adverb that follows is, is similarly right. tinged. Um, hilarity is 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 one one tick off of true humor, one tick off of real funniness. It's actually overwrought and maybe a little artificial. That's the the connotation of hilarious. Yes, and I think there's an implication too that they're drunk. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, still, still on Sunday morning. Right, exactly. Yeah, maybe, and so that's why kind of why they're twinkling. Say that again. Uh, this, I think this sentence is jarring because it suggests that they had a party Friday night, they had a party Saturday night, and now they're having a third one. That's the way Sunday I took morning. it too. It's one long, you know. It's called, it's a, it's called brunch, guys. Come on. <laughs> I one time heard someone say the best cure for a hangover is a Bloody Mary. And I feel like that, I feel like. I feel like that describes these people. I like thought it was kid- probably Jeeves, let's be honest. <laughs> it may have it may have been. But the twinkling, I think, I, you asked me to repeat it. I think twinkling also has that connotation of being drunk. Don't you For think? Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I th- and then, of course, the conversation that follows is the kind of conversation that someone who's not completely with it at the moment would have, right? One time he killed a man who had found out that he was nephew to Von Hindenburg and second cousin to the devil. <laughs> Reach me a rose, honey, and pour me a last drop into that there crystal glass. Oh, yes. <laughs> Everyone and, sounds so smart the third day of a bender. <laughs> yep. Did that, go ahead, Adam. You were going to say something. No, no. I was, was going to agree with you. That's, that's the perfect paragraph to follow that opening image. And then we get this, like, uh, this sort of <laughs> Old Testament listing of, or, or, or like Homeric listing of the ships, right? That's exactly what it is. That's what I wrote in my margin. That it's a cat. It's an epic catalog, which I think is another layer to speak to the illusion of all of this. And that um, it's like a mock epic catalog because it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> Does that make oh, sense yeah. to you? Yeah. And for one sure. of the guys is even named Ulysses. I mean, it's just yeah. It's, uh, listing all of the all of the people that showed up at Gatsby's parties that summer according to their families, according to their reputations, according to their places of residence. It is absolutely a 
I, I like the allusion to the, an Old Testament genealogy, but an epic catalog will do just as well. And I, I I'm, I'm feel certain that Fitzgerald is doing that on purpose. Well, if, if you look at the list, like Fitzgerald just went to the phone book, I bet, and he just found all the funniest <laughs> names. He, like there's no Johnsons or Smiths or, you know, I don't know, Andrews here, right? It's the Hornbeams and the Voltaires and the Black Bucks and, the, and Mr. Edgar Beaver, whose hair, they say, turned cotton white one afternoon for no good reason at all. And Clarence Endive and Stonewall Jackson Abrams and Ripley Snells and Ulysses Sweats and S.B. Whitebait and... Uh, the Mulrady's and Cecil Roebuck and Cecil, Sh- all the C- all the Cecils and um, you, he Horace O'Donovan. Now, if your name's Horace O'Donovan, I apologize. I don't mean to make fun of you. Um, for the the Backheesons and the Denikers and um, Benny McClanahan. <laughs> I mean, these are all like the names of they're like the bad guys in a film noir, right? Yes. Yeah. And I couldn't help but notice that in the list, the lists are interrupted by saying, and this one committed suicide and this one died. And this one had his nose shot off in the war. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. So there's something ominous here. Some, some foreshadowing, I think. Hmm. Mr. Albrooksberger. That's quite a name. Ardita Fitzpeters. <laughs> P. Jewett. Once head of the American <laughs> Legion. You're probably right that he looked him up in the in the phone book. I'm I'm remembering one time I heard Jerry Seinfeld say that every character in Seinfeld was named after a real person they knew because he feels like phony names sound phony. So he oh, only man. used real names. Hmm. So, okay, we get this long cataloging of the ships or this genealogy here in a sense. And then we get sort of a shift in tone. Yeah, everybody's there. Everybody's drunk. They've been drunk all weekend, and we get the shifting of the tone, and we get Gatsby coming over to, uh, coming over to the house, and convincing Nick to kind of go away with him, and he enfolds him into his life more actively, and he sort of, he pulls up in this gorgeous car, and Nick can't stop looking at it, and we get we start to get to know Gatsby a little bit. Why do you think that? Fitzgerald begins this chapter that is where we're, where the story's beginning to sort of take shape and the central conflict of the story is beginning to take shape. And we're getting to know our, you know, titular character, but at the beginning, but he begins, so he begins the chapter with all that. Why does he do that? And then give us this break. Adam, what do you think about that? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I think the first part of the chapter seems like kind of a wrap up of chapters one through three, there's a break. All these people, he says, came to Gatsby's house in the summer, period, double carriage return, new subject. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he turns a corner, like you said, and we get into some serious um, d- plot development where Gatsby says to Carraway, uh, look here, old sport, what's your opinion of me anyhow? Yeah. And then he says, well, I'm going to tell you something about my life. I don't want you to get a wrong idea of me from all these stories you hear. And so Gatsby begins to tell Carraway who he is and where he's come from. And I love the, I love uh, Nick Carraway's tone. I, he says, basically, I was incredulous. This is completely ridiculous. And I had a hard time not laughing at him because it was so patently, obviously mm-hmm. pretense. <laughs> uh, with this, let's see. He looked, look, this is the, the part that, that makes it really clear. He looked at me sideways and I knew why Jordan Baker had believed he was lying. Mm-hmm. He hurried the phrase educated at Oxford or swallowed it or choked on it as though it had bothered him before. And with this doubt, 
his whole statement fell to pieces. And I wondered if there wasn't something a little sinister about him after all. And then, then Caraway says, so what part of the Middle West are you from? I inquired casually. He says, San Francisco. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I just love that part. He's obviously lying. And yeah. Caraway can tell. Yeah. And one of the central questions that you as a reader going through it the first time have, who is Jay Gatsby and where is he from, gets a little wrinkle because now you, now you realize that he's not telling anybody the truth. Well, one of the things I love about that, that bit that you read there where he says, well, I'm going to tell you something about my life. I don't want you to get a wrong idea of me. He doesn't really say to him, like he's not really trying to convince him he's telling the truth. He says, I'm going to tell you something. And then he says, I don't want you to get a wrong idea. If he doesn't, he, is, he doesn't want him to get a very specific wrong idea. You know, that article there is really interesting. And he says something. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you the truth about my life or this is what really happened. He's like, this is this. basically he's mm-hmm. subtly sort of at least subconsciously revealing that this is just the story he wants him to know. And I love, I love the way that Fitzgerald kind of hedges, hedges um, Gatsby's sort of uh, self... This, the way he tell the degree to which he tells the truth about himself, and and he's but he does it in a nicely subtle way, which I think is some really good characterization there through dialogue. Yeah. And, okay, so, so go ahead. I, well, I'm I'm wondering if it's my turn to answer the question. Why do yeah, I? Yeah, think yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. All right. So here's how it struck me. It, chapter four starts off with this epic catalog, this Homeric catalog, and the 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 placement of that scene in the Iliad is all description of all of the ships and and kings and their men who come to lay siege to Troy. And so I read it as all of these people have come to lay siege to Gatsby. And Troy falls. So I'm thinking Gatsby's house is going to fall too, especially since the juxtaposition is then that like Paris, Gatsby's trying to woo a married woman. The parallel is pretty obvious, it seems, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think so. I think it's pr- pretty intentional. I think so, too. I think this, this um, casting of the story... Well, Fitzgerald's a great, a great novelist and a great artist, and they're all working in the tradition that, they, that they're born into, right? He's, he's got the whole literary tradition of the West at his back. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that, that Shakespeare... Uh, you know, makes allusions to to antiquity and to the classical epic tradition. Fitzgerald is doing it too. I th- I think that's a really great observation. And I and I also think that it's it's from reading just that it's it's hard for me to think this is going to end well. <laughs> I think that's fair. That's a good guess. <laughs> so I've never so so you're you would equate. Gatsby with Paris. No, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a one-to-one correlation, but I think mm-hmm. that I think that Fitzgerald is putting that in the back of our mind. I mean, uh, I don't. Sure, sure. Gatsby sure. doesn't yeah. strike me as Paris, but, but it's a tragic love story, right? One that has huge repercussions to ruining a lot of people's lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Adam, what do you think of the? I'm, I'm not saying that Angelina. I mean, I'm not saying Angelina is directly correlating him, you know, one-to-one to to Paris. But what do you think of that idea of Gatsby as Paris? Do you think that? Do you think that that? Uh, I'm trying to think if in what ways Paris and Gatsby are similar. Well, I yeah, and I would I would shy away from saying that Fitzgerald is doing a one to one Gatsby Paris allegory on purpose. I, I, right. I certainly and I'm not think saying Angelina is too far, yeah. but the idea of of um, I mean, if you do think back to the to the epic tradition, uh, you know, Paris is reaching a little far. 
and trying to bring something about that is um, at odds in some fun, fundamental way with the culture that he lives in or with the, you know, the principles that the, that his world is founded on. He's breaking something mm. and, um, and overreaching and the disaster is culture wide as mm. a result. And uh, I think there's a, you know, that's a, that's a pretty obvious parallel at least. Mm. Angelina, were you going to say something? No. Okay. All right. So then we get, so we get to know Gatsby a little bit in this chapter like we get a lot more we, we get a lot more into his head obviously it's through nick and then we also get a lot more description of him do you angelina you haven't read this in a while so as you're reading it what is your sort of perspective on gatsby does the fact that everyone's so taken with him make sense to you um in terms of the way he carries himself the way he speaks the the things that nick's giving us about him or does it or does it seem sort of strange that everyone's so taken with him does he seem as mysterious as the book or, or at least as people think he is to you um and words, does all the attention make sense I think it does just I, I think anybody that comes in, rolls into town with a whole lot of money and is throwing it around is going to be surrounded by people that that absolutely makes sense to me mm -hmm. um nick's fascination with gat well i mean i don't even i'm not sure what to call that it it, it makes sense to me in a sense i mean i i thought the scene with him and gatsby was um i'm sorry with him and daisy was, was so well done to to see past the persona and see the real man i thought that was really interesting so I, I in nick's cottage yeah, right. So the next the next chapter. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. But Gatsby's a mover and a shaker. He's he's very connected. That came out in this chapter too. He's he's got a guy for that, right? <laughs> about every about everything. He's very connected and those kinds of people have a lot of mystery around them and and popularity. But there were some things about chapter 4. I still don't I still haven't wrapped my head around who Gatsby is. I agree completely with Adam that his story doesn't add up and then later he shows a picture of himself at Oxford. Of course the timeline is off, but mm -hmm. it's all it's all no, I think that's that's intentional on Fitzgerald's part because um, Nick has got this this what does he say? Um I for a moment let's see what does he say? With an effort, I managed to restrain my incredulous laughter. The very phrases were worn so threadbare. They evoke no image except that of a turban character leaking sawdust. I mean, it's it. it Nick doesn't yeah. believe it at all. But then, yeah. as you say, Angelina Gatsby whips out a medal and a uh, from Montenegro and a picture from Oxford showing him. And Nick says, then it was all true. I saw the skins of tigers flaming in his palace on the Grand Canal. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I saw him opening a chest of rubies to ease with their crimson lighted depths, the gnawings of his broken heart. In other words, I guess he's telling the truth, but, but the question isn't answered yet. We're just getting both sides of it. In fact, the question is only intensified. Right. Is Gatsby's history real? We've got now evidence on both sides. So what I, I want to, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, finish. I was just going to say, I think that the, we're supposed to be still asking, is this Gatsby who he says he is? And maybe even now a little bit, the question is now a little bit more, does who he supposedly, um, who he supposedly was in the past, is that relevant to the present? Because now he's, we see him acting in the present and, and exerting influence on Meyer Wolfsheim and mm -hmm. um, calling Jordan Baker over to discuss this matter. And he's actually, regardless of whether his past is real, he's a real character in the present. 
And the question of what's real, where you, the past that you came from or the present that you're acting in um, is really central. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a that's a question right at the heart of modernity, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I love about how he kind of um, embodies that, if it's Gerald does, is is the way he has Nick and Gatsby sort of interact with one another. And, the, and the, in particular, the way that Gatsby draws Nick into his life, because it seems like Gatsby has done a great job of sort of compartmentalizing things, right? So there's the there's the persona that is the sort of host of these parties. And he stands at the balconies and he lords over it and he moves about kind of like this mysterious, you know, duke or something. But then you get and then you get the the version of him that's with that's in the restaurant with Wolfsheim, right? And he's this sort of businessman that's being whisked off. He's, you know, that's making these decisions and people even the businessman like that, like even this gambler looks at him with this sort of sense of respect, but then he can be in the car or in the house or out on the lawn with Caraway, And he's a completely different person. And that's the one person, Nick is the one person who he's brought into his life that he can be all these different things with. So everyone else only sees him as one thing, but Nick sees him as more than one thing. And so that's sort of that what you guys are talking about sort of embodied in that, in the, in the, the way that Gatsby sort of doles out, his own personality. Yes. And I think this sentence fits with what you're saying. So at, at the end of this section, we're just talking about where, where Nick is trying to f- figure out, you know, is, is this story real or not right before that section break um, when they cross the bridge, that whole, that whole section, when they cross the bridge and he feels like he's entering into mystery when they cross the bridge into New York city. And he says, anything can happen now that we've slid over this bridge. I thought anything at all, even Gatsby could happen without any particular wonder. Hmm. I just, I was struck by how American that is, right? I can go to New York city, even a Gatsby can happen in New York city, right? We can invent ourselves. Yeah, we can invent ourselves and we can invent a, we can invent a past. And if it's useful for us, we can actually make it real in the present because Gatsby's whatever, whether Gatsby, I think the ambiguity about his Oxford career in this chapter is, is, is intentional. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it was real, it works for him. He uses it. And so it's real. Mm. He ha- Gatsby happens without mm. any particular wonder in his dealings with Wolfsheim and Jordan Baker and all of the, the various characters here in New York. Mm. It's like, well, Angeline, you've watched Mad Men, right? Oh, yeah. Adam, have you watched Mad Men? I have not. So this guy... This character's name. Oh, it's all about inventing an identity. You'd love it. It's this guy's (laughs) guy's name is Don Draper, but he's really also got another name. His real name is something else. And he took the name Don Draper and he becomes, that's what he is. And so one of the big things is he's both of those people. He's not just the original name. And I don't need to, I don't want to give away too much because if you haven't watched it, it kind of ruins the first couple episodes. But he he's also that he's both of those names at the same time. And the way he can shift the way or the way he's forced to shift in between them is, is really fascinating. And it feels like that's the sort of the same thing for Gatsby here. And it's when he's with Nick that he's least, I'm not going to say that his name's not Jay Gatsby, but he's least the sort of magnet that owns this giant house when he's, when he's in the car with, with Nick or when he's wondering or he, when he's in the cottage, I mean, it feels like he's the least like the person that he's trying to be. The least pretentious maybe. 
Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you brought up Mad Men because I was thinking about it in this chapter too. Um, you know, Mad Men raises up the question of identity um, by connecting everything to the advertising world of New York City, which is all an illusion. It's all about crafting an illusion. And I feel like there's so many echoes of that in here too. The, the fact that it's in New York as opposed to somewhere else um, and the questions of identity and illusion. And the 1920s um, was when modern advertising took shape. I mean, that's when it was invented. So this is all part of the part of the backdrop of crafting an identity, uh, the, the connection with money and wealth and self-creation, the self-made self man, identity, all of this. I mean, um, the advertising world convinces you that <laughs> not just that you can be anybody, but that you can pay some money and be anybody. <laughs> Which is essentially what Gatsby's done, right? Right. I mean... To some degree, we the story hasn't revealed exactly how much, but to some degree, that's 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 what's been happening. And I love the way that they bring in that stuff about the World Series being rigged. yes, mm-hmm. all um, this shady backdrop on the shiny American dream, right? It's all it's all right there in this book. And so you know, what's more American than baseball, than right? Baseball, uh, maybe apple pie, moonshine. I don't know. I actually saw Born. that movie. Eight men, eight men out with uh, yeah. John yeah, yeah. Cusack. So I got the reference. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to get the reference. <laughs> oh, That's funny. Also, Field of Dreams might have helped you. Well, that, well, but eight man that was really it was a scandal of the nineteen nineteen World Series with the White Sox when they became the Black Sox because they threw the game. Right. Yeah. Well, in Field of Dreams, those guys that. That's, oh, that's right. Shoeless Joe back. Jackson. Yeah, that's Shulish right. Joe, well, John yeah. Cusack was Shoeless. I can't believe it's been like 25 years since I saw this movie. Obviously, it made an impression. <laughs> but yes. The, the uh, conversation with Meyer Wolfsheim here in the, the restaurant where that reference to the 1919 World Series comes up, I think yeah. is really interesting. Yeah. Because Wolf, um, Wolfsheim's about to leave and uh, he's, we've, we hear that he's older than both Caraway and Gatsby. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and they invite him to stay. And he says, you're very polite, but I belong to another generation, he announced mm. solemnly. You sit here and discuss your sports and your young ladies and your, he supplied an imaginary noun with another wave of his hand. As for me, I am 50 years old and I won't impose myself on you any longer. And so we have a, we have a, a sense that, the, that members of the, of the previous generation are, are passing away and the action of the story is going to take place in the mm-hmm. new generation among younger, more active, and we, we, we subtly get the sense, um, less pure people, new, young, uh, energetic, and maybe a little um, sinister. And, yes. and the shine of the, of the old halcyon days of American history has, has, has come off a little bit. And the guys that are doing it now, Gatsby and such, are the are the kind that uh, make up their own histories and are involved in in immorality and uh, you know in, in bad stuff and so this this contrast is is pretty clear from this paragraph but a couple of lines later uh, Nick Carraway's asking who Meyer Wolfsheim is and Gatsby says he's a gambler he's yeah. the man who fixed the world series yep. back in yep. 1919 and this blows Carraway away because he had him all set up um Meyer Wolfsheim as a representative of the mm-hmm. old world that is tried and true and certain and sure and good. Yep. And yep. He, oh, he says, yeah, this, he says the idea staggered me. 
I remembered, of course, the World Series had been fixed in 1919, but if I had thought of it at all, I would have thought of it as a thing that merely happened, the end of some inevitable chain. It never occurred to me that one man could start to play with the faith of 50 million people with the single-mindedness of a burglar blowing a safe. And, And... Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. I had a lag there for a second, you know, because of internet and all that. So finish your thought. Oh, yeah. So so we get the idea that 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 not even Wolfsheim, who supposedly, at least at the beginning of the conversation, represents all that is that is true and good and certain and sure. Not even he can be relied upon because he took in his hands something that Americans um, relied upon and blew it up. Hmm. Well, you skipped a bit that I think is that, well, that I really like anyway, that bit about he becomes very sentimental, Gatsby explained. Um, that's, this is one of his sentimental days. He's quite a character around New York. So he sets, he, he Fitzgerald sets us up to think a certain thing about the past, as you're saying, and then mm-hmm. he flips it. But on the way to flipping it, he sort of starts to tear it apart by suggesting that, you know, really what all that is, is sort of a sentiment, as this sort of sentimentality. It's not real. Right. And um, Fitzgerald and seems to be saying here, even the Gilded Age is illusion. Right. All that glitters is not gold. There isn't yeah. there isn't a golden age of America. Right. And, and yet the I agree with that. And yet the mm-hmm. characters all and maybe Fitzgerald, too, are uh, powerless against the urge to look back to a yes. golden age, to look for it, to search for it and to try and bring it about again. Yes. Hmm. And I also am struck by the fact that this is the second shady sports reference, right? So first, Jordan Baker cheats to win. So that <laughs> yeah. that's a motif through this story, right? You do whatever it takes to win. And then this example is that people profited by being dishonest. So you got both of those ideas, right? You got to do what it takes to win and to to turn a profit, it doesn't really matter. You you can you can fudge the rules. You can be a little dishonest yeah. or a lot dishonest. <laughs> Yeah, like 50 million percent dishonest. I don't know exactly how you measured that, but I just went with the number he said. Um, the the single-mindedness of a burglar blowing a safe is really interesting as well. Adam, you, I liked how you read that. What do you, how do you take that line? Which again, a very general question, but I'll just, what's your, what do you like about that line? Well, I don't, I don't, I think it's violent. And uh, has reference to nefarious activity, right? It's it has uh, there's a reference to crime, and theft, and um, you know immorality of one kind or another. And I just think the the um, Meyer Wolfsheim pr- is presented to us initially as someone who wouldn't represent those things. Mm. And so once again, um, Fitzgerald is calling into question the old verities and the old certainties and making the characters and, and us readers really look foolish for, uh, for longing for a, an idealized past. Hmm. He says well, that uh, he seems to be saying on the one hand, we can't help it. And, and it's, it's a, it's maybe even a heroic impulse to look back to an idealized past, but we're doomed. The project is doomed because it isn't what you think it is. There's nothing dependable about that impulse or the things that it attaches itself to. I love that you said the word dependable because when you have a safe, for example, you think that it's going to preserve something for you, right? You think it's going to be a dependable preservation preserver rather of something that is worth preserving. But he's saying here that just he blow the burglar blows that up. It Mm -hmm. completely annihilates it. And then he, he asks Gatsby, how did he happen to do that? 
he, so he sat there and thought for a minute says, and then how did he happen to do that? And Gatsby says, he just saw the opportunity, which yeah, is such that's a quite an response. answer. That's quite an answer. That's more of an answer to the question. Why did he why? do that? Right. And Gatsby's like, I don't, he just, he just did it, you know? Um, uh, and then they can't, he says, you know, he can't get him. He's too smart. I'm fascinated by some of the little, this, the little subtle bits of characterization we're getting in terms of how Gatsby hears things. Like there's so many of these questions that Nick asks Gatsby hears. It feels to me like he's hearing them differently than what we as the reader are hearing them. Is that, you think that's fair? Say it again. I'm not sure I follow. Well, so like this question here, how did he happen to do that? I asked after a minute and Gatsby says he just saw the opportunity. The answer, he just saw the opportunity to me, seems like the answer to the question, why did he do that? But Nick's saying, how did he do that? Like Nick wants to know what was the mechanism by which he fixed the World Series or how did he trick all these people? And Gatsby's like, I don't know, he just saw the opportunity. Um, so it seems in some ways like Gatsby's hearing something different than what Nick's actually asking. Uh, well, see, I read it as that's just the way a shady person thinks. Like that he's operating in a world that I don't understand. That's how, that's how I read some of the businessy stuff that's happening with Gatsby. And maybe it's also okay. intentionally vague because, sure. yeah. you know, his interest in, uh, in economy of space and action, the, 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 the fact that Gatsby is vague about his business dealings is kind of a, right. uh, that's an image in the story. And he just continually uh, builds it throughout the whole novel. But it's but significant that... about Gatsby's actual machinations. Mm. Right. It's significant. I think that he, he, he doesn't pass any judgment on it. Right. Gatsby doesn't. Yeah. Right. Well, he's too smart to go to jail and he saw an opportunity and he took it. That's not the way we tend to talk about crime. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And then I love the juxtaposition that after this, they see Tom Buchanan. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I wrote in the margins of my book that when Tom and Gatsby meet, Fitzgerald is sort of building his world, building the worlds together. Yes. So I love that Adam, I think one of you two mentioned that when Will Shine leaves, it's like tearing these worlds apart. And then immediately he's building these other two worlds together. So he tears apart this sort of world of Wolfsheim's generation from Gatsby and Nick's generation, but then he brings Tom into that. And so then these separate, these sort of disparate worlds within the new generation come together. And so oh, and the, I think, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, just from a craft perspective, I love how Fitzgerald uh, structures all that. I think that he's intentionally asking us to compare Gatsby and Tom. So Tom, who has was looked so unattractive at the beginning of this book, the, the fact that Tom enters right at the moment when we're, we're, we're raising some questions about this Gatsby, not just who is he, but is he legal? What exactly is his business? This all seems very shady. And then he sees Tom Buchanan, who's also, well, you know, I don't know that I'd call Tom Buchanan shady. Tom Buchanan is just an in-your-face bully. He's yeah, there's no mystery about him. He's the Wolfsheim of his generation. <laughs> and he's also the, um, the potential, the object of Gatsby's um, illicit, immoral, not illegal, but certainly immoral uh, uh -huh. plan. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Because Tom is the guy who's going to be, uh, hopefully if Gatsby's, if Gatsby gets what he wants, Tom is the guy who's going to be wronged here. And specifically his wife will be stolen, which is yeah. interesting right before that we talk about the burglar blowing a safe. That's, that's, that's a, yeah, that's that's a theft too. So it's two thefts. The fact that we don't like Tom Buchanan um, is interesting because, because all of our, uh, our moral sense as readers should put us on his side. 
but but we're not on his yeah. side. We're on Gatsby's side. Strange. Yeah, we, well, we talked a little bit. Well, we I think you raised the question anyway, Adam, about whether we should, how we should view Gatsby in terms of the degrees of his heroism, well, the way the degrees to which we should view him as a hero. So maybe we should talk about that a little bit within the context of these chapters. We get this the backstory here. The rest of chapter four, well, not the whole, not, well, most of the rest of chapter four, the backstory of how Daisy and Jay Gatsby had known each other once upon a time and they were forced to be separated. And then Daisy, you know, Jay went off, Gatsby went off, fought in the war or whatever he did. And then um, Daisy married Tom. And then it comes back um, at the end with um, Nick and Jordan walking in the park. And then the chapter ends. And then we get into chapter six, which is where Daisy and Gatsby are brought together. Chapter so, five, you mean? Yeah, five. Yeah, yeah, five. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, numbers are difficult. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, so let's. Can we talk about that for a little bit? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the degrees to which he is or is not presented like the hero of this story in these two chapters. Do you have any thoughts well, on that? I, sure. I, th- I think it's a great question because it, um, it, it forces us as readers to, to I, I, what I think is it forces us as readers to be disciplined in our reading and thinking about literature. Because the question of wh- who is the hero of the story and is the protagonist a hero, if it's a literary question, I think the answer is fairly straightforward. If it's a moral question, though, for us as readers, it gets confusing. Mm-hmm. Because I would argue that in every way, Gatsby is the hero of this story. He is the guy whose, whose goal and whose plan is the main motive force behind the story arc. He's the guy whose personal resources are the things that either bring the, the story to a conclusion successfully or as a failure. He is the guy whose dreams and hopes are the things you identify with. And most importantly, He's the guy who's after something larger than life. He's after an epic goal. He's trying to recreate his life in the image that he wants to recreate it in. These are heroic level things. He is the hero of the story, literarily speaking. And the fact that he's doomed to failure, or by chapter four, we suspect he might be, is, is no, it's almost epic, ancient epic in its, he's Hamlet. He's, he's um, Achilles. He's any of the, he's Dante. He's, the, he's as heroic as any of those characters. The problem though, I think, is that when we say a hero is, must be someone that we are being taught to emulate, that we get into the weeds a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's, and I think you'd have a hard time saying, let's all to your, you know, to your high school reader, go, go be like Jay Gatsby. That's, that's what heroes are for in right. literature is for yeah, us to the, emulate the type. That's the, yeah. that's the other side of that question that I think makes it difficult. I, I completely agree with everything that, that Adam says at the same time, we, we can, if a book is offering a cautionary tale, then you can learn something from the hero, right? By then not imitating the Bible does this all the time. Be like this person. Don't be like this person. So the stories that the moral of the story not that I think literature has a moral of a story. I feel like I'm going to be struck down for even saying that. I fight against that all the time. But in a cautionary tale, 
it's an example of what not to be. And that's just as valid as the examples of what to be. And scripture uses both of those. Um, so one of the things that's so interesting to me, and again, I don't know how this book is going to end, but I, I'm picking up on some tragic uh, foreshadowing here. So I'm, I'm going to stick with that reading. But what's so interesting to me is that Gatsby is more than Gatsby in this book. Gatsby is quote unquote, the American ideal. That's, that's who he is. Let's say his origin story is bunk and he actually came from nowhere and he went East and he made it big. And now he's living the ideal dream life, the American dream. We're all chasing the American dream. If it turns out that it's an illusion, if it turns out that the American dream is tragic and you can't get it, or if you get it very Dante-esque, right? You get the American dream and it turns out to be horrible. Those are, those are, those are things that are worth knowing in the moral sense as well. And, and they do teach us something very valuable, even if they're, what would be the opposite of imitation? Avoidance. <laughs> but I think, I don't think there's any question that Fitzgerald is holding up Gatsby as the American dream and then questioning that dream, whether right, it can I, happen, I, whether it's real, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's tr absolutely true. He's definitely holding up the idea of the American dream, but it's another question, whether this is a cautionary tale. Well, I don't know because I haven't gotten to the end, but but yes, right. But but I but it, just in theory, whether an, if an author is pointing out a um, that something is an illusion, it's not the same thing as saying that author is cautioning his readers against against a particular kind of behavior. No, that's true. There was a conversation in the in the the Facebook group about immorality after our first uh, episode of the. Mm -hmm podcast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were saying, isn't it terrible how the world is so much more immoral than it was in the past? What can we do about that? And, um, I, you know, that's a fine conversation to have, but it's, it's neither a literary conversation, nor is it frankly a conversation about the great Gatsby, because it, it's, it's two different things to say that, um, that Fitzgerald is pointing out immorality in American culture and giving us a prescription of what to do about it. Oh, absolutely. On the one hand, agree with that. And then on the other hand, saying, this is what caused it. I think Fitzgerald's question is, where did this come from? Why? Not how. Why is his question? And, and the, I think the immorality in this story, even literally speaking, is a symbol of something else. It's not actually the main point. The, the Great Gatsby is filled with images of debauchery and dis, and dissipation, immorality and adultery and all that stuff. It's not a story about those things. They're symbols. Mm -hmm. And what he's saying is, look, you, you understand debauchery and dissipation. So I'm going to paint it for you so that I can talk about what those things symbolize. And, and that's really what, what Fitzgerald is on about, I think. One of the things that's interesting is that for the most part... Most of the mo it, most of that is done through, well, most of it is done through illusion. I would say, like most of the time, the chapter ends, or this, it's sort of referenced in sort of some sideways way, right? Like he says, he doesn't really need to paint the most debaucherous, debaucherous, the most <laughs> scenes full of the most debauch. Yeah, debauch. There, the most debauched scenes, right? Am I? Would you agree with that, or would you disagree with that? Like he seems to be either alluding to them as in the scene that you referenced last week or the scene, this, the chapter sort of ends and you're sort of just supposed to know it's, it's implied what happens. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's painting and giving us enough detail so that we can fill in the blanks. And I think that's, uh, I think that's true. I mean, he wanted to get it published in 1925. So oh, right, right. Of course. <laughs> can't fill in all the blanks. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't mean to suggest that I think 
this book is a cautionary tale. I was I was trying to raise the question of does a book have to have a quote unquote hero for you to imitate to be a worthy book? And Cautionary Tales is one example of a type of book that doesn't have that, that still has value. And I totally agree. I mean, I love books that just raise questions and um, point out illusions and uh, are not necessarily yeah. fitting into either of the other kind. Right. I'm, I'm, I, agree, I would be I very... I would be very surprised if this book ends all tidy. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with you, Angelina, that that uh, a cautionary tale is certainly a legitimate form. And there's no question about the fact that, that you don't have to have a hero that is worthy of imitation in every single work in order for it to be a worthy book. Um, I wonder if there's also uh, a third category that uh, books that are neither um, right. you know, morality tales or cautionary tales, but... Um, but straight observations about the state of a, the state of a culture. Hmm. So this conversation obviously has come up on the Facebook group as we were leading into the conversation of, or leading into these shows about, about this book and Matt Bianco, who, you know, our friend Matt Bianco who works here and he was kind of the beating heart of the dialogue, I suppose. And he was talking about the importance of ideal types to to that are worth imitating and the need for them to be in literature especially for younger people so there's a degree where we have to say well what's proper for young students and then what's okay for people with more experience and more uh, discretion to read but mm -hmm. i think he, so his concern you know one of the things that he expresses and I, and I you know i'm sure we'll have to have him come on and defend himself sometime but one of the things that he talks about is the idea that when a person runs up against a temptation? What are the things that their heart is filled with? And so intellectually, you can say, this is, you know, you can think intellectually, well, the Gary Gatsby is saying this about this. And so you can process it and it can become sort of part of your, um, your vocabulary for thinking about the world. But what happens in the moment when temptation arises? Are do you do you turn to something like, or does the does something like Gatsby pop into your head and give you permission to to, to, to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. And so that's one of the things that he's, he's talking about. Like, what are we filling our minds and our hearts with? So I'm curious if you think that, what either of you think about that and like the, the con, how you build a balance of those things. And, and we're not, I'm not asking directly what age group should read this. I'm, that's not really the question I'm asking. But <clears throat> what do you think of the way of that concept of the things that we're filling our minds and our hearts with? Well, okay. So I think there are two different questions there. One is about age appropriateness and the other is about the ideal type. And I, I think you have to be very careful in too narrowly defining what it means to have an ideal type. Um, I don't think that necessarily yeah, means it has to be a character that I want to copy. I mean, what if it turns out that I finish this book and I think F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald has raised the best possible questions for me to ask about the modern life? Then his questions would be an ideal type for me to follow. This is the, these are the things I should be asking myself as I go through life. Is this real? Is this an illusion? Is this mm -hmm. glittery thing really gold or is it going to lead to my doom? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a very good thing to fill your heart with. At the same time, I have spoken before about age appropriateness. The younger the child, the less morally complicated universe their books need to have. That's why fairy tales are so good for very young kids because black and white is clearly spelled out. Only when they're older and more sophisticated can you begin to show a more morally confused world that requires wisdom to navigate. So that that's my concern about the whole ideal type conversation is that I, 
I think we have to be careful not to define it too narrowly. I would agree, Angelina. I think that's a great comment. And just to add to that, um, I think it's really important for us to, as readers, consider the author and his goal in writing the story. Um, Fitzgerald isn't writing for children. Right. Right. And, and therefore, um, children are not his intended audience. And to give uh, The Great Gatsby to a child um, is, the, is a bad move on the, on the part of a, of a teacher or a parent. It, not, a, not a morally bad move, a literarily bad move. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is, is creating a, um, a disconnect between the author and his intended audience. And, and keeping the author in mind in that connection, I think is really important as it, as it is for that question of the, uh, uh, that, that Matt presumably raised about what do we fill our minds with? If we're paying close enough attention to Fitzgerald, we reading his book and considering it is filling our minds with an excellent, an excellent thought. Oh, that's I think too. That if in a world where TJ Eckelberg has gone blind and moved away, this is what we get. And I would suggest to you that that is an absolutely true statement. It is capital T true that if we live in a world where TJ Eckelberg has gone blind and moved away, this is the kind of certainty that we get. This is the kind of vain striving. This is the kind of illusion that results. You can't fill your mind with a better thought than that. I think. Mm. Mm. Agreed. And also, I, okay, I haven't finished the book, right? I'm five, five chapters in. So that's my, <laughs> that's, my, <laughs> that's my little statement in advance, right? But I haven't seen any debauchery presented to me in these five chapters in an attractive way. These people are miserable. They are unhappy. They are train wrecks of human beings. So I can't, I can't fathom a universe where I think to myself, ah, oh, a three-day bender, and then I'm going to get behind the wheel of my car. The Ga- Great Gatsby told me this is a great idea. Like, no, I what exactly in here would someone, I guess well, I don't want to be naive and say people can't be tempted, but I don't see anything portrayed attractively here. If Fitzgerald had portrayed a world where um, that was attractive, it would have been a bad book at that point because he would have been failing at his literary objective, which is to examine the causes of a world of illusion and dissipation and debauchery, which in Fitzgerald's perspective are philosophical, religious, cultural. And if he, basically what he's suggesting is that the cultural, religious, philosophical foundations of our world have crumbled. It would be a bad literary move to say, and as a result, debauchery is fun. It just wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Yes. And I also don't perceive that he's attacking religion, but simply observing that it no longer holds the cultural place it once did. Exactly. I would say that's exactly true. On another one of our podcasts on Forma, I interviewed um, Jeffrey Overstreet, who's a film critic and novelist. Um, and we were talking about Madeline Langle because she just had, her birthday was last week. So we were kind of doing some things to commemorate that. And we were talking about what Langle's perspective on what on this conversation would be. And then Gatsby came up. I'm going to mention we were talking about it. And, and Jeffrey Overstreet pointed out, he said, I think that, um, this is not word for word, he said that he thinks that, um, that one of the, that the way Gatsby gets interpreted um, has, has altered its reputation. So you look at the most recent movie, My Boz Lerman, he said that he thinks that the, the movies and a lot of the interpretations of it are concerned with things that Gatsby was l- less concerned about. He talked partic- particularly about things that the book itself loves as opposed to things like 
the movie loved. And he pointed out that the new movie, he's like, the new movie loves money. That's not what the book's about. The book is not about the love of money. Well, it is about the love of money, but it doesn't love money. But the movie, the new movie loves money, I think was how he put it. And so I was, and that got me thinking about what, in what ways has, has the inclusion of, of the great Gatsby on every high school reading list in America for however long, in what ways has that altered its reputation? And, and hmm. do you think that is the, is the best thing, not just for the life of the book, but for the life of our, for, of our students. I think those are two obviously very separate questions, but what do you think about that first question? In what ways has the inclusion of this book and sort of the canon of, you know, American high school reading or lit lit literature sort of reading lists meant to the life of the book? Adam, you teach literature. You, I mean, you both do obviously, but Adam, you, you I don't teach this book. So I, I'd love to hear his answer. Yeah. Yeah. So Adam, what do you think about that? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not super familiar with the um, the ins and outs of the book's original reputation. I'm not sure that um, I can speak to how that reputation has changed over the course of time. That's fair. But I will say that that I'm f- um, fully in support of it being um, required reading in uh, in American schools, uh, provided though that it's read correctly. I mean, I think I think really. If Fitzgerald is read the way it appears to me that he was intended to be read by my reading of the book, if he's read carefully and honestly, then this this is one of the great efforts in literature at uh, describing a culture to the people who live in it and mm-hmm. identifying its main problem and providing some sort of uh, conversation about where that problem comes from, about what the cause of it is. That's a conversation that all readers, young readers, uh, high school readers need to be having or learning how to have, I would say. I will say this after last week's episode. So three chapters in, I thought, oh, I'm going to add this to my reading list for my students. Like, I, I think I will teach this. And uh, so I obviously I'm not objecting to its inclusion. I think it's very worthy. And I think especially if if it's a if, if it's a senior year reading that it's, yeah. it's providing students with exactly the kind of questions they need to ask before they go off into into the world. Yeah, but exactly. just a comment about what you were saying about the movies. I haven't seen the movie, but I do love to observe cultural phenomenon. And after the movie came out, everybody was enraptured with the great Gatsby images, right? I think the movie might be speaking to the power of images and you get sucked into the glamor of those images in a way you do not in the book, right? We're hearing, we're reading descriptions. That's not the same thing as seeing beautiful women and beautiful men and how elegant they all look. Um, it seems to me that the, the, the viewers of the movie have, have gotten <laughs> duped by the shine, which isn't a real shine. That's Fitzgerald's whole point. So I just scratched my head that there were a, a million great Gatsby themed weddings after that movie came out. Like, like you might be missing the point. Yeah. Also <laughs> dooming yourself. What's also, that? Also dooming yourself. That's just a bad decision. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like this, I don't think <laughs> uh, this movie means what you think this movie means. <laughs> well, I, I will say this. I, I did see the Baz Luhrmann movie and loved it. And I think that the, um, that he did a great job of um, painting the picture that we oh, that we imagine when we read Gatsby, and in particular the descriptions of his parties and the 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 wooing of Daisy Buchanan, <clears throat> but I, but I think that that people who go ahead and have a Gatsby wedding afterwards <laughs> are not only missing the point of the book, they're actually missing the point of the movie because he did <laughs> a fairly good job, in my opinion, of being true to the essential the the essential thematic thrust 
of the book, which has more to do with illusion and a vein striving after something which doesn't ever exist. It never really existed. And all those sorts of things that Fitzgerald is on about, I think Baz Luhrmann did a pretty good job of touching on. That's that fascinating question. then. Yeah. I mean, that means that all these people, they are acting out what Fitzgerald is critiquing. They are caught up in the shine. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and Lerman, I mean, he's he's the perfect director for a movie about Jay Gatsby because the movie was over the top in terms of shine. So yeah. I can I can see why you know people that aren't reading carefully to begin with get distracted. Isn't that the whole point? Gatsby is a gigantic distraction. Yes, and I can't help but think about questions of you know should high school students be reading this? I mean. <laughs> A lot of it comes down to the fact that hi- I'm just going to, I'm going to put my head on the chopping block here. <laughs> high school English is often taught very, very poorly to the point where it would be better if these kids didn't read these books at all. <laughs> you know, like if, if a high school teacher is reading The Great Gatsby and the kids are not learning that this is how to read this closely and how to see the questions Fitzgerald is raising and the critique he's offering, then that class has done a disservice to the book. It's not that the book has been bad for the students, it's that that the book has been poorly read. Yeah. Agreed. On the Facebook thread, my I think my final thought, I'm sure it's gone on since. I just, I have a new baby in my house. I can't keep up with all the conversations. Um, so uh, the thing that I said was, if you're not, if you don't feel like you're prepared or ready or capable even to teach it, to teach it effectively, then you, then don't, don't do it. <laughs> I mean, like yes. you, people, we should be able to say, this is where our limitations are. I mean, that's, I think one of the first things a teacher has to be able to do is say, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm prepared to do. And this is what I'm not prepared to do and not take on everything, you know, that we feel like we should take on, or we should be capable of taking on. Like we can get better at things over time. And if we limit ourselves and that's better for our students in the short run and in the long run. Um, and that seems like kind of in keeping with the themes of this book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> don't overreach <laughs> yeah. you, were you going to say something adam no no i am not at all i think that's that's good to remember actually th- I, I do have one thought though um as i'm talking here the um at the same time we, we don't need to be afraid of a novel mm-hmm. even because we feel uh, unqualified to teach it of a novel true, that was true, true. in yes. english for average everyday readers. I mean, I, I think it's good to remember that F. Scott Fitzgerald is not writing an obscure, um, arcane work of literary art that's designed to be understood by only people with advanced degrees. And I'm not saying that you were suggesting that, but that's right. It's, it's sometimes right. we, we fall into yes, the yes. Like, this is really, this isn't obvious to me what it means. And therefore it must be, in, I must be in over my head to, to um, interpret it. I think really, if we stick to the basics of you know identifying the protagonist and finding out what he's really after and what the obstacles that face him are and whether and how he gets around them, um, the answers can fall pretty pretty easily into place. Yeah, and I just want to say my my comment there was not meant to discourage people from taking on the challenge or or relying on some of the principles you're talking about. There it was more meant to say if if you leave out the Great Gatsby and you didn't feel like it was right for your home or you were not prepared to teach you. It's not going to ruin your children. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Right. And, and that's how I took it when you wrote that. I mean, no one should be violating their conscience. I mean, that's going to come across in your teaching of the book, how much you disapprove of it. And that's not, that's not a good experience for anybody. Right. But, yeah, right. And, but when you're talking about fear of books, there's so many different levels that I, I, I perceive people being afraid. And one of them is of being afraid that a book will corrupt you if you read it. Um, and I'm talking here about 
canon accepted literature. I'm not saying you apply the same principle to Fifty Shades of Grey or anything like that. Certainly, I believe there are things that are corrupting in and of themselves. But when you're talking about, okay, Christian people that I respect find something good in this book, maybe I don't have to be terrified that if I read it, I will become apostate. I think it's a really good reminder, Angelina, that ought, that ought to be at the top of our minds when we go to read the great books, that they are um, they're for us and they, they represent an opportunity to participate in Western culture, which um, clear-minded people can do without fear. Yes, we don't have to be afraid of these books. And yeah, I mean, it's right to want to think on good things, right? Um, but we can have a really narrow definition of that. And, and yep. yeah, people can be very afraid of everything from pagan literature to modern literature and well, and medieval literature and Shakespeare, really there's no one safe from the fear. So yeah, good reminder. Well, we should probably turn back to the book for a few minutes before we uh, depart. Yeah, and get to chapter five, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So chapter five, they get, they come, they get together at uh, Daisy and Jay Gatsby and Nick Carraway get together over at Nick's cottage or whatever we're calling it. I call it a cottage. I choose, I choose to see it as a cottage. It seems cottagey, shacky. <laughs> shack. <laughs> yeah. Um, shack, shack has like a little bit too negative of a content. <laughs> um, I want to look at, in particular, on my version, it's on page 92. There's a section break there and it begins with after the house. And it's where he begins to reflect on the light across the bay. We, we can't look at the whole chapter just for time reasons. This is after they have been, Jay's been throwing his shirts around, just kind of showing off. The first part of the chapter is he's unsure how to interact with her. And then he decides to show off a little bit. And yeah, that was weird. I got to say that would not make me cry. If a man was throwing his shirts on the bench, she was like, those are the softest shirts I've ever seen. <laughs> well, but that might be the difference between you and Daisy Buchanan. Well, I was going to say, say, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, if a man was throwing around his shirts, would you cry too? <laughs> uh, well, if he was getting them dirty for no reason. Maybe. <laughs> Somebody's got to do the laundry, man. What are you thinking? <laughs> um, well, we, so we get this section here. After the house, it says, I don't know if you guys are with me here. Yes, I found it. I found it. After the house, we were to see the grounds and the swimming pool and the hydroplane and the midsummer flowers. But outside Gatsby's window, it began to rain again. So we stood in a row, looking at the corrugated surface of the sound. It, if it wasn't for the mist, we would see your home across the bay, said Gatsby. You always have a green light that burns all night at the end of your dock. Daisy put her arm through his abruptly, but he seemed absorbed in what he had just said. Possibly it had occurred to him that the colossal significance of that light had now vanished forever. Compared to the great distance that had separated him from Daisy, it seemed very clear to her. It seemed very near to her, almost touching her. It had seemed as close as a star to the moon. Now it was again a green light on the dock. His count of enchanted objects had diminished by one. Yeah, it was a great paragraph. And I love that that comes after the part. I think this is. I think this is one of the reasons why he's throwing the shirts around. Because in a sense, for Daisy, those those beautiful shirts that he's throwing around. Those are enchanted objects to her, the way at least the way she responds to it. And then mm -hmm. we get this moment here where for it seems to Nick that for Jay something enchanted is missing. Now this comes back to us at the very end of the book. You'll you will um you might remember the the references to the green light, Angelina mm -hmm. talked about quite a bit. But one of the things I 
was taken by that this is basically the exact midpoint of the book. Ah. At least in my edition. So there's 184 pages in the book. Yeah. I guess that's with a note on the text. So 180. And we're right around page 90 here. Um, It's halfway for me too. It's page 62 and there's 121 pages. Now, I make you could make an argument that this is the um, that this is kind of a climactic moment in terms of the structure. I think that's what you're alluding to. Yeah. Yeah. You you know, to put it on one of those pyramid shaped plot charts, you might put this Mm -hmm. moment at the apex because he uh, right now Gatsby has in his arms the object of his desire. Mm -hmm. He has, you could say, achieved it and already in the instant that he achieves Mm -hmm. it. It's it's uh, magic fades. Boy, that that wow! What an observation. And then on the next page, Nick makes it clear that he's saying <laughs> he spells it out for us. Right, Daisy cannot live under the weight of the illusion that Gatsby has. No one could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, his count of enchanted objects had diminished by one. Is one of the great sentences in American literature because it embodies that whole. Um, uh, well, it embodies the thematic thrust that Fitzgerald mm-hmm. is, is after the, in, the idea of enchantment, that this whole thing is a spell. And in order to survive, it needs to persist as an unreachable fantasy. Mm. And in the moment, it's not a fantasy. It's dead. I just, um, that is a powerful observation. Absolutely is. And, and, you know, making um, the pursuit of a woman be the way that he um, explores this idea of if you get what you wanted, you know, is it real? Does it give you any satisfaction? Um, you know, he's tapping into a very long tradition of literature and, and the courtly love tradition, which it hinges on the exact same thing. It has to you're be right. unfulfilled longing. Yep, you're as soon right. as it becomes fulfilled, it's gone. It only exists in the unfulfilled state. Yep. Well, and Nick seems to get that, right? Because it, it says right. the count of enchanted objects had diminished by one, and he can't even stand there and look at it anymore. He begins to walk about the room examining objects in the half darkness, these things that he's only seeing partway, things that he's not even seeing totally clearly. The photograph of an elderly man in a yachting costume attracted him particularly. So I love that he is sensing that. In a sense, it seems like he's sort of, there's an intimate moment. On the surface, it seems like there's an intimate moment. He turns away from it. But he seems to sense that sort of the sadness of what you guys are describing there. And he can't keep looking at it. He has to kind of move away from it. And, and in Gatsby has the same um, reaction in that paragraph that you read a second ago. Uh, Nick says, as I went over to say goodbye, I saw that the expression of bewilderment mm-hmm. had come back into Gatsby's face as though a faint doubt had occurred to him as to the quality of his present happiness. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the actual happiness that he's been striving for doesn't fulfill like the fantasy did. Hmm. The colossal vitality of the illusion he created. Yeah, I was going to read that sentence too. Yeah. There must have been moments even that afternoon when Daisy tumbled short of his dreams, not through her own fault, but because of the colossal vitality of his illusion. The colossal vitality, Mm. the 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 real feelingness of his illusion. That what gave the whole thing life was his imagination. Well, and and that's what he's that he's talking about creativity next, and this feels a little confessional. He had thrown himself into it with a creative passion, adding to it all the time, decking it out with every bright feather that drifted his way. 
this is an amazing sentence. No amount of fire or freshness can challenge what a man will store up in his Ugh. heart. Good. I love this writing so much. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the best. I'm going to raise a question that I've been asking myself since the very beginning. And it's such, it's neither here nor there. So you can shut it down, David, but I got to ask it. So I once had a professor who said, you either like Emily Bronte or Charlotte Bronte. I have found that to be true. This is my backdrop to what I'm going to say. <laughs> is this true that you either like Fitzgerald or Hemingway? Because no. I, the, the, I read The Sun also. Okay, so let me finish. I <laughs> uh, 17, I read this and I loved the writing. When I was 19, I read The Sun Also Rises. I wanted to set that book on fire. I hated him so much. So why, why do I like Fitzgerald and I don't like Hemingway? I've never met a teenage a woman <laughs> under 25 who loved or a woman under 20 who loved Hemingway. Okay, so I was right under. I just couldn't quite make it, huh? It no, that's like, I'm sure there are, there are a lot. I just am saying I've never met. I taught, I taught Hemingway. You love them high both, school seniors. Yeah, so this I'm at least the one example in the world. Writing. I mean, Hemingway's so like sparse and Fitzgerald's, he gives me those... A little bit more good, florid. Yes, I like that. Yeah. They, were, they were buddies. But then so much of... Okay, so again, it's, it's been a, quite, a, quite a moon since I read either of these books. But what I remember feeling about The Sun Also Rises was just... It was a yawn fest. Everybody's just ennui and so bored. But everybody's kind of bored in this book too. But it just didn't strike me the same way. I wanted I to do physical to do harm with, to Brit. <laughs> I think it has to do with style and voice. And, and mm. that... And that's one of the great things about reading literature is that every author is an individual and they, they talk different. Isn't it yes. glorious? <laughs> I like the I mean. way Fitzgerald talks. Um, to that point that you just brought up, Angelina, about uh, um, the sun also rises being an ennui fest. Here's a sentence from Gatsby um, <laughs> that I think is to that point. Uh, this is Nick. A phrase began to beat in my ears with a sort of heady excitement. There are only the pursued, the pursuing, the mm. busy and the tired. Yes, that was a quite a line. That's kind of Fitzgerald's version of that um, that sense in Hemingway you get where people are just waiting for the next cafe to have the next drink to stay up all night. Hmm. I mean, to be fair, um, Hemingway wrote a lot more than The Sun Also Rises. Uh, many of which, which, things which actually have some more semblance of plot in them. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not, I don't mean by any stretch to try to give my 19-year-old impression as the word on Hemingway. Sure, sure, I mean, sure. I'm just, God, I'm sure I would be horrified if I read it again about what an idiot I was back then. But um, maybe not. Just like five years from now, listen to this podcast and think, God, why didn't someone shut me up? But <laughs> we all we all grow, right? But I'm just I'm just wondering why my teenage perception was that I enjoyed Fitzgerald's writing and, and not so much Hemingway. So. I think I think you've helped to answer it. He's got a he's got a wordy voice that I like better. Mm -hmm. Do you like Hemingway, Adam? Oh yeah. Okay, so you're with me on this one. You can like oh, both. I think, yeah, I think Hemingway is great. I think I, I do think, support the Bronte argument, though. Well, I have they, found that both, very much to be true. The thing I like about Hemingway and Fitzgerald together is the way they relentlessly um, point out the problem and. Um, I think they have their finger on it. And as, in terms of offering solutions, they don't. I like that. I like that about them as well. They don't go to offering solutions because they don't trust themselves to be answer men. They don't trust themselves to have the solution for, for Western culture, but they're really good at identifying the problem. And I, that's what I like about them. A few years back, I taught a class to high school seniors and basically I was told it was modern lit, right? So um, basically they wanted 
but that they meant they wanted 20th century. So what I did was I structured the beginning of it with, we read Hemingway and Camus and let's see, we read, well, we read uh, this, we read Gatsby and we read a number of other books kind of in that same vein. And then the second semester, we followed it up by kind of reading O'Connor and Walker Percy and Wendell Berry. And and I think what happens is the response, ah, it took, yeah. it took decades for the response to their, the diagnosis to occur. I mean, you get certain people kind of juggling that you get T.S. Eliot, for example, I think uh, trying to offer something of a response, but it took some cryptic work to do so. And so I think that that response that you're talking about, the, the sort of solution offering happened, I think, Deck couple of you know two three four decades later, as you had um, the Christian tradition having time to res- contemplate and live in and and ultimately respond to the problems that they were offering. I mean, there's a lot of other s- solutions offered as well, but I think the solutions that O'Connor and Percy and Barry and some of these other people, Lewis obviously as well, and Tolkien, the solutions they offer are well. I mean, it would make sense that I would believe they're the most appropriate ones, but those those kind of books and in, in dialogue with one another make for a really interesting course for what it's worth yeah yeah oh, oh, absolutely absolutely yeah and i think if you study the history of literature you see that there are m- I, i'm i'm most fascinated with what i call transition periods of of literature where authors are dealing with the fact that they recognize some cataclysmic change has just happened um and that's when you get the kinds of literature that's just raising questions like it's almost like these guys are prophets that they are the first ones and and gals i should say they are the first ones to say something's not right here. This is not going to work. But then it ends up taking a long time for those ideas to play out so much that everybody's like, this this didn't work. <laughs> and then you start to see a, a diagnosis of, and people starting to say, here's how we get out of this mess. But you have to take the long view. It's, it's really the same people who, who say something's wrong here that are, the, that are the same people who say, here's how to fix it. Uh, this I, is a- I would say I would expand that idea to say that that there's something about literature essentially that has that quality to it, not just the literature of transitional periods, but literature, but art generally and literature mm-hmm. in particular comes from the urge at some level to say, as I look around this world with my seer's eyes, with my poet's eyes, with my novelist's eyes, I see a problem. Mm-hmm. And and whereas a nine out of ten people might just shrug their shoulders and trundle back off to work after noticing the problem, an artist creates a work of art in response. Mm-hmm. And there there's something about all art that is the artist's response to recognizing a wrinkle of some kind, yes. recognizing a problem. And I think reading literature with that in mind is really healthy. Yes, and the questions are valid. We we should not be angry with a book for not giving us the answers. Agreed. That's well said. Mm. But, th- but that's why the tradition matters, right? Because the tradition, maybe it doesn't offer yeah. us solutions. Someone else will. Conversation. <laughs> yeah. But oh yeah, I, absolutely. Angelina, I know you're not like, you don't like love the American, American lit, but I think that in American lit. Hey, I'm, you guys are convincing me. This is good. <laughs> I'm liking this. Well, I, I talk a all the time about how I think in American lit, we see what you're describing there about these transitional periods happening in a much more sort of truncated, um, like the time is shrunk down a lot. And maybe it's because of the way, when the novel became popular. But I think you see it in the, that, that what you're describing in American lit really dramatically. So for example, I think Mark Twain is a response to transcendentalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, you know, I think that plays itself out basically every few decades in American lit as the, the evolution of the novel really happens. Um, maybe, you know, it took century. What, what, what was taking centuries, I think was sped up a lot more at the same time that American lit was 
kind of taking root in part because of the novel, in part because of the way technology was working and making everything happen so much more quickly, I suppose. Yeah, I think there's something to that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Also, Americans just move faster than the rest of the world. Yeah, it's kind of the whole point. (laughs) (laughs) For good or ill, right? Exactly, yeah. We're going to get there first, for good or ill. Yeah, we're going to hit the ocean one way or the other. (laughs) Um, Except Adam's a lot closer to it than we are. I was just thinking that. (laughs) Well, I guess it depends on which one we're talking about. Yeah, it depends on which ocean. Um, (laughs) Who wants to go east, though, right? um, Hey, it's the American tradition. Go west, young man. Yeah, and Gatsby, Fitzgerald subverts that and makes us realize that no one wants to go east. Uh, So we should probably wrap this up. Do either of you have any final thoughts that you want to offer here while we... uh, conclude for this week i don't other than to say i'm i'm really enjoying this and i, I can't wait to see where fitzgerald goes i trust fitzgerald mm. and so i'm i'm ready to put myself in his hands and, and i want to see what he what he sees i love it let's end on that that is the great great statement from a good reader about how to approach a, a, a classic i trust this author i'm ready to put myself in his hands and go where he leads me wonderful and the beautiful thing about this book is it's short and we don't have to don't have to worry about him abusing our trust too much. Um, I'm, but Adam Andrews and I have debated about long books before. <laughs> I have you because you were like all those those terrible Dickens books. Just kidding. You don't want to you want to sit down with Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy <laughs> over the weekend. <laughs> I don't. What kind of weekend long enough for that? Um, you know how long weekends are, right? Um, well, Adam, I wish you the continued absence of snow. Um, and Thank you, sir. May your autumn linger a little bit longer. And Angelina, stay safe. Um, enjoy your weekend inside the uh, inside your apartment. In the snow globe. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, before we go, I need to say once again, thank you to New College Franklin for sponsoring the podcast this month. Remember, you can find out more about them at newcollegefranklin.org. And then um, I also want to add this and Adam and Angeline, if you don't want to listen to me say this, you can leave. Um, But we are kind of in that season of fundraising here at Cersei. So we have a couple of people who have uh, agreed to match any donations. So that means every dollar, obviously, that you give between now and December 31st is doubled. And the donations we receive this time of year allow us to plan for the coming year, um, all the things that we always talk about. But we also have a very particular opportunity that we've been hoping and praying for for a long time. We basically moved from originally having our offices in my parents' garage uh, to their living room to a dungeon. That's what we call it. It Basically, it was a building that had no windows. Um, And through your support, uh, we have been blessed to be able to work out of those various uh, settings. But we um, have gotten to the point where we can't continue to work. Uh, We kind of have outpaced our space. Um, And if you haven't been by our offices, then you probably because we haven't had room to invite you over. Uh, But (laughs) we we found a more long-term home. We've looked into rentals and all that kind of stuff. And it's basically been the rental spaces are either not big enough or way too expensive. So we've found a really... um, really good space for us that we are interested in potentially trying to buy. Um, And we need to raise money for a down payment on that property. So if you are interested in contributing to that, um, it would actually allow us to have space for recording and things like that. Um, Then, you know, please consider supporting the work that we're doing here. um, If you are interested in that. And of course, if you, you know, any little bit 
helps. If you can give $3 or $5 or whatever it is, any little bit helps. Uh, every, like I said, every donation is, is doubled. And you can um, figure out how to do that. You can, you can head over to searcyinstitute.com slash donate uh, to contribute. Uh, even if you just uh, contribute by leaving a comment or a review or by subscribing to a podcast, that goes a long way as well. So there are lots of ways you, contribute to the, you can contribute to the cause this winter. But I just wanted to let everyone know that there are some very specific things that we've been praying for and um, that we're uh, fundraising towards if you're interested in contributing to the cause. So that's out of the way. But th- uh, thank you to everyone who's been listening and for all the comments and the conversation. And don't forget that you can participate in that conversation over on the Facebook group. And we also now have an Instagram page for Close Reads. If you just search Close Reads Pods on Instagram, you can follow us there. We're giving away two copies of a really beautiful every man's collection um, of Christmas poems. So Aww. we're giving away one copy to a follower and then also to the person they tag in the comment section. So if, go follow us there and we're going to give that away once we get to a couple hundred followers. I think we're getting close. So uh, th- all right, that's all out of the way. Adam, Angelina, thank you so much for participating in the show. and oh, for joining before we go, what chapters for next week? Oh yeah, uh, chapter six and seven. Okay. So right. chapter six, six and, and seven. seven. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks to both of you so much. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, all right, last chance. Anything else you want to say? No, this no. was great. No, this was a lot of fun. Really enjoying this, guys. Yeah, me yep. too. Me too. Me too. All right. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. See you guys. Bye.